we built an underwriting engine. So when you're looking at the property, you can just, you press a button and it shows you, you know, the products and what your down payment would be, what your payment would be, how it, how it fits. So you have some expectation of how that lender works. You're not relying on them to show you that a week later after you've contracted the property. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Kurt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is a fun one. You got it. Yeah, well, you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I'm a traditional old-fashioned guy, so I, I'm a, I'm a uh, pistachio. Pistachio, I guy. like it. I like it. Now, since it's a flavored ice cream, do you feel like you have to have toppings on it, or are you no toppings guy? I am not a toppings guy. Okay, okay. Now, you're joining us from the DFW, the Dallas area. The next time we're down in that area, where's the best place we can go get some pistachio ice cream? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I just have the local places I take my kids to. Um, but I, I I don't know that there's a, a overwhelmingly respectable ice cream place in DFW that I know. Yeah. Now, are you a Bluebell guy then, since you're in Texas? Uh, yeah, I like that. Reminds me of my childhood. That's what I grew up on, right? Yeah. So, when I, I'm more uh, of a gelato I think, guy, if I can pick. Oh, I love some gelato. But when, when I lived in Texas... We, um, I lived there during the Bluebell shortage, which I would call a crisis, uh, where they didn't have any uh, ice cream or Bluebell. You couldn't find it anywhere for like six months or something like that. People were going nuts down there. So tell us, what's your scoop? What do you do today? Um, oh, boy. <laughs> um, you know, we run New Western. Um, we, we really solve the number one, number two challenge that uh, real estate investors have. Um, and that's, you know, they want to find properties and they want to finance properties. So New Western's a marketplace where real estate investors can find properties to rehab. So these are all value add type, you know, so the types of properties that an investor would be interested in. Um, there's about 200,000 investors on the platform. We trade a house every 13 minutes or so. So it's big, it's national, we're hyper-focused in you know, I don't know what it is, 45 different locations or something like that today. Um, and then we connect all the, you know, financing is always top of mind for every investor and it's changed a lot since 2008. There's so much financing available. It's about finding the reliable lenders now. So we've organized um, all the reliable local fix and flip lenders uh, and bridged them into this marketplace so that the investors can just come to one place. They can find a property. There's an automated underwriting engine to tell them, you know, what their payment's going to be, their down payment on various different products that they select. Gotcha. Well, I, if you've been in this space for any amount of time, you probably recognize the brand new Western. So I'm excited to kind of get into the journey of how you built that and some of the differentiators you offer, but I guess take us back. How, how did you even get involved in real estate? Where'd your real estate journey begin? Um, I've really always loved real estate. I don't know why. As far as I can remember working really hard, it was in real estate. Um, you know, I kind of ran away in my younger years. Uh, and uh, the last place I ended up before Texas was the Caribbean. Um, I was working on some big projects out there that were fun. But I came to Texas and, uh, you know, it was pre-2008, uh, made all the 
you know, we thought we had a playbook that, um, you know, it was the playbook everybody followed. And when 2008 came, we had to throw it in the trash, right? We had to rethink literally everything. Um, and that's when we founded New Western out of necessity. It was a product of circumstance instead of design, really. And uh, it turned to be turned out to be pretty popular. Um, that world was so inefficient. Those investors really enjoyed just having a simple solution where they could come in and get a property and they they didn't have to spend three months looking for one. They could come off one job and jump right into another one. Gotcha. So it, it sounds like you started right in the middle of the 2008 GFC. We started the company in August 8th, 2008. Wow. Perfect timing for uh, a new real estate company, I guess. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, the playbook's being rewritten now, you know, so it's exciting times now again. Um, I mean, I love up markets and we've been in a raging bull of a market, but I also am excited, you know, at the disruption and the change in the market as well. It's, 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 it's made it interesting again. That's right. Um, so you've mentioned the, the term marketplace for uh, a couple of times here, I guess, help our listeners understand, like, what is a marketplace? How are you differentiating yourselves from um, some of your competitors out there? Well, you know, the space is not very organized. I think we've organized it. We've got a head start. Um, but there, it's a hyper fragmented industry. You know, if you, if you want to find property, um, you know, we survey our, our these 200,000 investors every quarter. And they always tell us every same two things that are their top needs, properties and, and finance. Um, and top of mind, you think, okay, I can go work with a real estate agent as an investor to find deals. And, um, and that can work depending on, on what you're doing, but that's, that's more of a traditional approach for a non-traditional buyer. Um, and then you can work with a real estate wholesaler you know, those are, those are a lot, those are generally hyper fragmented, small shops, you know, three guys in a, uh, in a garage or something like that, that send, uh, you know, marketing mail and things like that. Um, or you can come to a marketplace that we have. And I, I think the investors like to do, you know, they like to have more than one resource. We're not the only place they should go to. Um, a lot of the wholesalers have realized that we are their marketplace and they can bring us their inventory and that's worked out really well for them um, to, to organize their business. So, and a lot of real estate agents, listing agents have realized, you know, in a market, once they kind of get to know us and figure out what we're about, they get a lot of these properties that they just don't want to list or it's maybe inappropriate to list it on MLS because it's a burnout or it's some other thing that's going to be a very difficult situation managing all those like variety of contracts or, or a home buyer that thinks they want to take this on, but they, they, they back out last minute. So they realize they can just put it on the marketplace and probably get a better financial result than the MLS for their client and have it gone in a day. So that's kind of how we fit into the market with all the other participants. And who is your traditional buyer then? So I, I've heard you say traditional, um, kind of a person that just wants to buy something every now and then versus like this idea of like somebody that does it as a career, they're always needing to turn properties. Like, so who is your end buyer when you, when you really net it out? You know, um, we still cater to a very small customer. So I'm a believer in, in small business when it comes to real estate. Um, we've seen this institutional element come in these big operations. Um, 
and that's come and that's on pause right now with the securities market and all these things. Right. Um, but our customers are, you know, most of these individuals are going to be these corporate refugees. They've got some management skills. They look at this not just as a financial endeavor, but also as a creative outlet sometimes, you know, this is something that they enjoy. It's a lifestyle. And these are people doing five to 10 properties a year. You know, it's a full time. It's a big deal for someone to flip 20 houses a year. It's a very big deal. You, you don't have a lot of scaled companies that are doing this in mass. What do you think? Um, you know, yeah, I would agree with you. So um, a little bit about my history is like I started off just buying turnkeys because I was in corporate America. I didn't want problems. I didn't want um, rehabs. I just wanted to buy something that I knew I could put somebody in and let the market kind of take it up from there. Uh, it started getting into the point, though, that I was like, OK, I'm, I'm able now to understand this and I want a little bit of value add. The problem I had was exactly what you mentioned around traditional wholesalers is that you find one who could source some really good deals but you saw one every three months. And then you would go with others who got a little shaky, meaning like I've got a signed agreement with them. We're a week away from closing and all of a sudden they're like, hey, I, I got another offer, I gotta go with them. So you kind of got disruption from your, from your business from that standpoint. So I like this idea of like, hey, you don't have to do everything through a single marketplace, but it's good to know that they have kind of consolidated a fragmented industry and are always going to have consistent options for you to go look at so that when you are going through these dry spells of I've got nothing on my plate, I want to get involved in something to keep the ball moving that, you know, there's steady Eddie right over here in the corner. That's always got consistent deal flow. It's very consistent. And like anything, I think there's so much um, misconception in our industry, right? Our industry's not the most mature, um, real estate investors are generally pretty desperate to get information on it. You know, it's, it's a pathway people are interested in. Uh, there's a lot of education out there that I think sets expectations that are maybe not what you accurate, but I think when people come to whether it's a wholesaler or a real estate agent or a marketplace and they think every deal is going to be a perfect fit and that's the expectation. But, um, you know, just like anything, you know, you've got to go through, imagine if you were going to do a direct mail campaign and you were going to have, you know, 50 uh, sellers that were willing to sell their house to you um, every month, you know, that you could purchase. They had a desire to sell it. They had a price in mind. Um, the cost of that would be obnoxious to have that lead flow going and that those opportunities. Now, what are you going to do if you had that marketing campaign? You're going to buy five houses, right? Five are going to be a fit, things like that. And I think we have a lot of, uh, a lot of investors, you know, it's, it, it's amazing. They're, 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 they're small independent businesses, right? These are flippers that flip five, 10, 20 houses a year, right? So, you know, they're, one of them is going to be an expert in this neighborhood. They're going to outbid everybody else, you know, because they're really comfortable with that neighborhood. They understand what values are, they know, and it, so I think it's it's just a very, very nuanced industry, I think, uh, for the marketplace. Are you finding a lot of lead sources from your traditional wholesalers out there? I, I promise this question's going somewhere, but I think if you're a if you're a wholesaler, and, and we have wholesalers that have their own podcasts and YouTube channels and all that, and they I'll tell you what they say is um 
you know, they, they get that deal under contract and, um, new West, new Western can usually move it pretty fast. Right. So, I mean, it, it's really the luck of the draw. If you're a wholesaler, if you're doing three transactions a month or something like that, um, you know, maybe you get one in this area, maybe there's a word of mouth. Somebody tells you this and you go and you get one in this other city that you're not familiar with. You don't have a network. What are your chances of finding the buyer that's available? Isn't in the middle of a rehab? Isn't, you know, so I think, um, some of these doors are being closed from a TCPA compliance thing where you just can't text everybody in the world. Like you actually have to build a business and a real marketplace. And a lot of those wholesalers every day, you know, come to new Western as a, as their disposition channel. And they realize, you know, why am I going to go throw a bunch of illegal bandit signs or do spend half my life on Facebook trying to, you know, every time I get a deal when I can just, I can streamline my business and I can just move it all through New Western. So they look at us as a channel there and it works for everybody. That's, um, that's where I was going with that. So two things I would say is one, um, when I was still kind of working the day-to-day of a corporate America job, I, I decided that, you know what, forget these wholesalers. I'm going to go run my own marketing campaign. Um, I did that for three months. I found, I got two phone calls and spent, uh, probably $10,000. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. That's, uh, that's probably not something I should go do. Let me just rely on somebody that's really good at that. However, what I've kind of seen as a trend in that is somebody could be really good at finding deals, but then dispositioning them, getting them off their plate, selling them, making, moving the property is a whole different level of skill set. And I've noticed that uh, some of the the wholesalers that I still have kind of hit my inbox, you know, you watch and if they get a property, I mean, it went from $100,000 to 97 to 95 to 92 to please, I will pay you $5 just to take it off my hand because I don't want to look bad to the seller. And so that's a whole different level of skill set. So I think what you all have positioned in the market from my 14 minute analysis so far is that you've got good lead flow. So you've solved that problem for kind of this traditional flipper or, or somebody that wants to buy value add, do whatever. And you've also solved the back end problem of like, Hey, you've got a good wholesaling business. Somehow you're good at finding leads, but you're struggling dispoing them. I can be a dispo market for you as well. So I, I think I'm seeing kind of what your business is now. Good. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, we're discovering what our business is over the deck, you know, the decades, right. As we've, We've rediscovered it um, over time. It's certainly very different today than it was in 2008. I mean, 2008 was very much a demand challenge and today's a supply challenge, right? Nobody can find any supply. Yeah, I um, I want to shift the conversation from New Western to talk a little bit about just getting your insights on the market today. Um, so first of all, everything on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter tells me that we have this supply challenge problem specifically because, hey, people bought homes like crazy for three years. They locked in 2.8% interest rates and nobody wants to give that up anymore. I'm wondering if you could kind of shed light since you work across the country and all these different markets. What are you seeing from a supply on the market standpoint today? We're not going to catch it. You know, I think... Um... You know, there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily housing professionals that think there's just all the supply is going to magically appear. So we're missing 5 million homes today. Um, that means family formation has outpaced our ability to, do, to deliver homes. We built more homes in 1993 than we did last year. Wow. Um, 
families are forming, right? You can imagine the, the U.S. population is increasing and people are one day waking up and saying, I now have three kids and I don't want them running down the halls of the apartment complex or whatever. And I want a garage. I want a yard. I want these things. So housing is in demand. People want houses. Um, but where's it going to come from, right? So there's these little incremental changes that we're, we're helping with on um, pioneering like ADUs in people's backyards, things like that. That's your build to rent, you know, in your backyard, right? Strategy that the investors are doing. Um, now we'll, we'll have 800, the last forecast was 870,000 new construction um, this year homes, uh, but there will be probably 350, 400,000 flips. Most of these flips are coming from this, uh, you know, today it's very different. Like a flip three years ago, like if you look at a lot of these reports coming out of Redfin, a lot of that has the iBuyers mixed up in there and things like that, right? That's not a flip. That's a, they're displacing the realtor, right? That's a patent carpet, you know, things like that. But most of the business today are independent real estate investors. And these are properties that are coming out of this pool of 15 million vacant homes there are in the United States today. Um, and they're repositioning this inventory. Not everything, right? But a lot of them are this pool of vacant homes. And that pool isn't all just, you know, distressed houses and things like that. Some of them are second homes, Airbnbs, things like that, right? But that is where the inventory is going to come from. And it's going to be challenging because it's going to be small business that's going to deliver it. Um, but we're not going to keep up with the demand. If we see rates drop, which everybody thinks they're, they're going to drop through next year, I don't think you have affordability, you know, all of a sudden taking care of itself. I think you, you have home price increases. You have, you have, you have a increased demand for a limited supply. Yeah. I, um, I tend to agree with you on this idea of like, everybody's waiting for rates to drop. And I've heard some of my peer group just say like, Hey, you're involved in real estate. You know, here's what I think. I'm going to wait till rates drop. That way I can go buy a home that's affordable again. I'm like, dude, you don't even understand if rates drop, the affordability will go through the roof because there'll be more capital now that's in the same position that you just said you were in that they're waiting to buy a home until rates drop. Well, now you're competing again, except for you're competing at a much higher basis than you were in 2018, 2019. I admire a lot of these people in the industry that really I think are close to it. Logan Motoshami. Um, a lot of these individuals that are tracking it very closely. Um, you know, they, the way people shop for houses is based on a budget, right? Um, here's how much income I have. Their, their mortgage professional tells them what they can afford, which they confer to their agent, which, you know, builds what they can look at, right? They can buy a house for three fifty. Um, when, when rates drop, you know, they can, they can buy a bigger house, right? Now you're going to have more people listing their houses. That's obvious, right? Cause they won't be as locked up. So you'll have inventory from existing um, sellers, but remember sellers are buyers. So individuals that list their house, they've got to live somewhere, right? So you cancel out that demand. And I think what you have when you have a lowering in rates, yeah, they can buy it more, more home, but eventually those home prices step up to meet that that demand, right? If you're not adding supply, net new supply in a meaningful way, you're just back to the same level of affordability. Maybe there's a, a, a period that you go through, but I, I don't see that dra dropping rates um, is a significant, um, meaningful 
uh, action to get us to affordability. How do we fix the affordability housing from your perspective then? Because I, I, my view on supply right now is that a lot of sticks went into the ground in 2021 because there was so much demand and cost of capital was cheap. And it looks like from the data I see it all but halted at the back end of 2022 and 2023. Now, there will be a ton of supply, at least in the multifamily space, that comes online in 2024. And people will think that, oh, look at all this supply coming on the market. But there's nothing in the pipeline for 2025 and 2026. And we will be back in this rut of, to your point, 1993, we built more houses than we did last year. So I'm just curious, like, I, I don't know if you're plugged into different people that are trying to solve the solution, but what are your just general thoughts to how we handle the supply uh, shortage issue? Well, the builders are slow moving ships, right? Um, so they, they can't react as fast. But if you look at the real estate investors across the country, they're, they're, they're small businesses, right? They can react, they're creative, they're innovative, they can fit into the cracks and opportunities that are available. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for the real estate investors to deliver that inventory. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of vacant inventory. There's ADUs, there's things like that. There's, there's a lot of that localized development that can ease the burden, but the only way you solve affordability is with supply. So you've got to figure out how to get that supply. And I think if the government, you know, right now it's a real hot button for institutions buying homes and things like that, right? Because that's how you become the middle class. That's how you build wealth in this country is you own a home, right? That's, that's important. And when you attack that, it's an easy bandwagon for politicians to jump on. But what I think they need to be focused on is a lot of this, um, some of the stuff that was in Build Back Better. Now, you can't agree with everything that's in there, but one of the programs that were in there were was called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. And what they were doing there is in pass. <laughs> it's been reintroduced. But if you're encouraging local business, real estate investors, to buy homes in affordable areas, um, and you're incentivizing them, whether it be with tax savings or other means, to just make finding vacant homes and returning them to market as net plus one inventory actually financially viable, I think that's a tremendous boon for the community. And I think that's where, if I was a politician, that's where I would be focused, right? That's the, the, that's the change that I would be trying to spur on. Um, let the real estate investors do this for us. They're, they're doing it today. They just, if you could pour gas on that fire, you could get a lot more of the result. Yeah. Um, we were chatting offline. I, I live here in Nashville, Tennessee, and Nashville has been a booming market for the past couple of like almost a decade at this point. Um, it's been great for me, uh, in my portfolio but even driving around Nashville with the amount of people we have moving here, with the amount of cranes we have in the air, you still see vacant homes. I mean, they're clearly vacant, dilapidated, need a little bit of love. So I'm not familiar with the uh, program you mentioned, but it sounds like incentivizing kind of these small business developers to go do something with those properties and giving some sort of incentive to do it would free up some of the supply in the, uh, in the market. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, 
I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you would like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Yeah, it's a very much a all boats to Dunkirk kind of thing rather than, you know, it's a, it's an infrastructure problem in the country. Housing, you know, we don't have enough of it. Um, it's not something the government is going to solve. It's not, it's not something these institutions could solve. Um, you know, the big institutional buyers, that's not what they're interested in. It's not what they could solve. It's, it's, uh, I mean, maybe on the build to rent, they're making an impact there, which is good, but, um, the local real estate investors, that is just an untapped motivation. Yeah. You've mentioned these institutions I actually had on my list to ask you about. Uh, it seems like a lot of press right now around these, not iBuyers, um, not pension funds, but the Black Rocks of the world that are going in and just buying up single family homes. Um, from the data I see, it's still a very small percentage. It is growing, but it's still a small percentage. I'm just wondering, like, are you seeing that in your dispo channels today? Are you seeing that across the market where it truly is these pension funds that are coming in and buying up single family homes? I mean, that, that whole world is on pause in a meaningful way right now. You do have some. Um, but I mean, the actual transactions, I saw an article the other day that 44% of transactions were large institutional investors and it was just false. Yeah, I don't you know, think that's true. They're such a mind. They were always such a minute part of the industry, but it's a hot button. It's politically, it's political gasoline, right? Um, you know, people need to rent homes as well as they need to own them. And I think that was just an opportunity that presented itself in the market. And what's happened with SFR, this is a big change people don't talk about very much, but you have one of the largest asset categories in the world, in the biggest economy in the world that's transitioned from local to to national and it's transitioned from private to public in a 10-year period that's a big deal and if you think that's not going to have some effects or some evolution on the market and and things like that i i believe the response to it has been i was expecting more right uh more disruption more 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 things than that now obviously we have a rate challenging rate environment and things like that that have caused a lot of these guys to go on pause but that is a big transition for a a very large asset category. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, speaking of rates, you all do some in-house financing as well, or at least a lending platform. Talk to us about the lending platform. And then I want to get into a little bit about what you're seeing on that side as well. We're like every investor's concierge when it comes to that. So if you're an investor, I mean, go, go online and try to find a hard money lender or a fix and flip lender. It's just, it's crazy, right? And they're changing all the time and they're running out of money all the time. And there's just, there's just, it's, it's wild. Um, so we know this space very well. We were a lender starting in 2009, you know, when nobody had money, we just, we organized, you know, we had, we had hundreds of millions of dollars in portfolio lending we, we had put together for this, which isn't big for that space, but you know, we, we experienced it all. And we started to back out of that space because we were competing with the local lenders that were really good that bring us customers that, that, that are part of the ecosystem. So we just developed a way to cooperate with them and bring value to everyone. So if you're a local investor, it's good to have someone that says, these are the five or six investors or uh, lenders 
that are really good, that have the best rates. The, the, they're the fairest. They don't run out of money every month, you know, these things. Um, and, and we actually built some, everything we do is just trying to make it easy for the real estate investor. Cause this can be kind of a complex uh, area to dive into um, if you're a small investor, but we built an underwriting engine. So when you're looking at the property, you can just, you press a button and it shows you, you know, the products and what your down payment would be, what your payment would be, how it, how it fits. So you have some expectation of how that lender works. You're not relying on them to show you that a week later after you've contracted the property and things like that. Yeah. So it sounds like, Hey, you're going into these markets like Nashville, you're taking a look at, there are dozens of private money, hard money lenders in this space. Let's go out there and kind of whittle out who are the five that are really going to matter and be around and be easy to do business with. And instead of trying to compete with them, basically you're, you're matchmaking investor with, uh, with lender essentially. We already know the, the, the lenders that are reliable and do a good job because we've done business. They've, we, we watch them close transactions for our investors over the years. Um, you know, if you're a lender, your client's no good if they don't have a property, right? And if you're trying to sell real estate, your client's no good if they don't have any money, right? So you've got to cooperate. Everybody's got to cooperate together. We want to help the investors find money. We want them to buy properties and, and we want them to have a good experience and be successful and not you'll be with the wrong lender. So we already knew who all these guys were, the good ones. Um, we knew the ones that had problems closing and put investors in difficult positions. So it was very easy for us just to organize the reliable lenders into one place and just build a bridge that allowed them to showcase their products. So, and then we do a whole bunch of concierge type work in the middle, um, you know, collecting docs, moving things over so that for, as far as the investor is concerned, they don't have to have seven different contacts. You know, they've got one person and it just just helps everybody out with our goal of, of just making the transaction simple. One less thing the investor has to worry about. Yeah. When you're getting into this uh, off-market needs love for a property space, um, you forget that it's not buying your, your single family home. There's not all those concierge services around there. It's you and you got to go figure it out as the entrepreneur. So uh, it, yeah, I, I smile when you say dealing with eight different people because that may sound um, exaggeratory to our listeners out there, but it, it, eight's generous. There are definitely a lot of people that, <laughs> that get stuff done and move through the system. Yeah. Where, um, so you've got the inventory side, you've got the uh, lending side, you guys gonna um, help us find contractors in the near future or kind of where, where's your next three year to five year vision here with New Western? So one of the things we've done really well at New Western is we've stayed focused. You know, you can do anything, you can't do everything, I guess. And I think that's been a misstep of many others. Um, so, we always make sure the core model is good and it works. And that's just providing inventory for investors that need it. Um, obviously the lending is very complementary to that. We launched title company because the title experience needs to be really well too. So a lot of these things that we do, we do because we want to have a smoother experience. Um, and with the contractors, there's just not a need for that right now. But if there is a need in the future, for sure, you could come to the marketplace and you could find peer rated contractors, right? But today we don't see that as we, we survey and we, we talk to all these investors. That is a need that is, is pretty far down the ladder, you know, for what they need today. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I want to ask you just kind of a personal growth question. So um, at the beginning, you mentioned you were kind of doing some projects in the Caribbean. Uh, you came back to the DFW area and now have scaled a phenomenal business over the past 15 years. I mean, any market you go into, your name is somewhere in the single family space. Um, I'm just curious, like, how has your journey been from a leader? So you start off with this idea of I want to I want to put together this business and now you're running across 45 different markets. I don't know how big your team is today per se, but I'm interested if you could talk to us a little bit about your leadership journey. Um I mean leadership is just about, you know, are you taking the people that are following you to the right place? Right? Um that's it's, it's as simple as that. Right? Do you care about them? Are, are, are you leading them? Um, and I think it's very challenging at times because you have to look at the strategy. You have to look at the totality of each situation. And sometimes you have to deliver really bad news that people don't want to hear. I mean, not sometimes, all the time. Because you look at the totality of the situation and you say, that is not the future. That's not where we're going. And I think, you know, bad leadership is often not making those decisions, you know, if it's a popularity contest or whatever and living, you know, day to day. And, and that's tough. That's tough every day. So that's really my leadership philosophy. I don't read a lot of leadership books. I, I was talking to my partner that, uh, years ago, actually, he said this and he said, I don't, he was telling somebody else this. He wasn't telling me. He said, I don't lead, I, I, there are some of books. And he said, I don't read, you know, business books. I read books on war. Um, I'm the same way. I've always done that too. And when the stakes are high, you know, the decisions need to fit. Right. And we've always run our business high stakes. You know, we've, we've always run like a mission, not like a lifestyle business or anything like that. Um, and, and that's the leadership I look at. So we took 70 of our managers to West Point. Um, and we had a two day and it was the people that they learned from because the U S army has an unbelievable leadership program. That's to, been developed over years. That is very simple. Um, and if the people that taught this to us were three-star generals and they were the, you know, the old captain of the, the space station, you know, an astronaut, like just where stakes are high. And if they can do this leading the complexities of a tank battalion that is highly coordinated with air support in Iraq, then that's leadership, right? Um, maybe some people would, would disagree with me on that, but that's, that's, those are the things we look to. Those are the role models, you know, that we look at as opposed to, you know, I, th I think some of the people out there in the business world is, you know, is that the real story, how it went down? Yeah. Or, you know, it's Southwest. Everybody says Southwest is so great at, you know, the culture. And, and I think they've got that, but, you know, they hedged fuel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was, and they cornered a market. Uh, so you guys went to the Thayer Institute, I think it's called. Yeah. Great experience. Unbelievable experience. You know, you learn all these things and they stuck with us, right? An AAR, you know, commander's intent. Uh, yeah. all these things. It's, it's, it's easy, simple, not, not overly complicated. People get it. 
Yeah, I went with uh, a group for two days there as well. And it, it was a life-changing experience. First of all, West Point is beautiful. Second of all, like it was a lot of those commander intent and things like that. And actually someone I, who I deeply respect is Stanley McChrystal. He wrote this book, Team of Teams, and he talks about, you know, he came from special forces where you were the baddest motherfucker around, like you get dropped in to go solve hairy, audacious things, all those sorts of things, to now you're leading an army. Now you're leading an army that has civilian personnel that are have to be involved with what you're doing or else you'll fail. And oh, by the way, you've got all these other countries involved. And oh, let's not forget you're in Iraq. It's their country too. They should get a seat at the table. So he's like talking through this idea of, you know, teams of teams. How do you go lead people with different agendas, different viewpoints and all those sorts of things? And the book Team of Teams is probably one of my favorite books because it does talk through like treat them like a garden. You have to constantly be nourishing those relationships for when you pour on it. Let everybody have same access to information. Not everybody's going to make the decision. Everybody gets to see what's going on with the organization and things like that. But uh, for anybody out there that's listening, if you ever get a chance to go to Thayer, it's it's worth the trip. I'm going to check out that book. I haven't read it. Yeah, worth the worth the listen to if you if you're not a huge reader. Um, Kurt, fantastic conversation. I, I want to switch us to our last round, though. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is: What is your favorite book, or just what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Um. I guess I answered that earlier with the books, uh, you know, where, where I, I, I tend to lean. So um, nothing recently, I, I, I guess, that I can speak to. But, you know, I like all the good ones. You know, Clausewitz, uh, you know, Seven Pillars of Wisdom was one I read recently. Uh, that was really good. That's, you know, that is uh, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. So old, you know, one. I'm not sure everybody wants to get through it and stuff like that, but yeah, you know, the stuff, a lot of people I've read it and a lot of people are reading it here. Um, Atomic habits is like one you can read in a, on a Sunday and just so simple. And so such good, just sound advice that is very basic, but you know, but good, I think is one that I think is impactful. Yeah. I, uh, I'm an Ironman athlete, which means I do long distance triathlons, all that kind of stuff. And people are always like, how do you do that? And it's like, well, you start these habits of, uh, I started with a five minute workout every day, which turned into a 30 minute, which turned into an hour, which turns into longer, like just these little minute actions build into great things. Um, if you are intentional about where you want to go and starting a small step. So I love that book. Our second Goggins one is got a new one out too. Yeah. You know, so I've been told that guy's crazy. Yeah. I'll tell you a story about Goggins when we get off here. He actually lives here in Nashville. Um, our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, I'm going to this guy's memorial event on Thursday. Um, you know, that was the, um, you can do anything that you set your mind to, but you can't do everything and pick a lane, you know, now it needs way more context in the situation and all that, but that is like, that's just everything. So everything for us is the simplicity of an 80, 20, right. And the ability to deal with all the heat from everybody that, you know, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. Why aren't we doing this? We should, you know, this is a dumpster fire over here and being able to live in the chaos that, you know, we're going to stay focused through all that 
all that firestorm, right? And we're just going to do this thing that we deem as most important and not get distracted. I think is, is, is really been our guiding light. I think we call that here clarity of focus or I'm sorry, clarity of outcome um, that we're going to stick to it. So that, that really has been the biggest eye opener and changer from somebody that was a business leader in here in Dallas, you know, that taught me how to stay focused, but also taught me that, you know, there's more to business than business. You know, you can be, there's just a lot of other facets, you know, to it. And, and that was good to hear as well. Yeah. The, you can do anything, but you can't do everything is something I have to remind myself and my uh, squirrel brain all the time because I see different (laughs) things and I'm like, Ooh, I could do that. I could do this. And really I'm, I'm taking the, the last part of 2023 here to really say, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And where am I seeing the most results? And how do I do more of that? Exactly. Our, thir- yeah. Our third one is, what are you most proud of in your life? Um, I'm proud of three things um, in this order. Um, my wife or, or, or my ability to talk her into marrying me back in the day. Um, my kids that I raised with her and... Um, and obviously the company and what we've done and the people in it, um, in that order, I think. Come on, man. With those flowing locks, she, she, she probably said yes on day one. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. Uh, well, our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, this is going to be a weird answer. Uh, <laughs> not what you were expecting. Um, I'm a big history guy. I'm going to say there's two actually, and it's an odd combo. Um, um, Chinggis Khan, um, and Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. Why? Those would be the two. Man, I think, you know, Martin Luther King, I think that was, I mean, the strategy and, and, and what he did, it, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, and it worked. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of passion, but also innovation and, and just, he just thought differently than everybody else when everybody was very angry and everybody, there was a lot of, you know, hatred in the world and things like that. It was, it was, it was really thinking in a different way and, 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 and having a result. The, the strategy that fit the moment. Um, and then I think, um, I think Chingus, <laughs> um, I'm a big history guy. And I think being able to roll out over the continents and, and, and different time, different place, very different strategy. <laughs> um, I think, but then roll that into a very well-managed empire. It was, was, you know, changing that strategy over time and rolling it into something that for the first time in history was very, um, that worked. Everybody worked together. I think after the outcome was, 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 it's something that's worth studying. It's something where there's, there's wisdom, different place, right? We're we're not going to have that strategy today. Right. But, but, but just the thought behind that, I'm a big strategy guy and I'm a big, uh, you know, you know, you start your morning with strategy. I, um, I don't know if this is true, but I read something on him that, uh, Genghis Khan that, uh, you know, it used to be customary during those times you would kill the messenger. 
And he was kind of the first empire emperor that said, no one touches the messenger. And in fact, if you so much as lay a finger on the messenger, we will come slaughter you and everybody in your family. And I forgot how I was talking to the kids about this, but I forgot the context of it, but it's just this idea of like, here's a man that was very, very, um, open, like he had open religion across everywhere. From my understanding, he allowed people to kind of be, and also whenever he defeated somebody, he didn't go in and rape and pillage and all that. He said, you have the choice to make, do you want to be a part of us or not? And if the choice is not, you've heard the stories on what's not, but if so, you will be treated as an equal and no one will hurt you. I don't know if that's true. You sound like you have a little bit more knowledge, but, uh, yeah. It's an interesting part yeah, of the story. If it is merit-based society, things like that, where it was just a very big change uh, for the time. But yeah, that that was you know everybody fit in, and he saw value in in the various groups um, beyond you know. And that takes a lot of. I can't believe you're gonna. I'm gonna use the humility in the same sentence with Genghis Khan. <laughs> but no. you know, it's kind of like you get out of yourself uh, a little bit there, and and the ability to do that, and you know. 13th century, 14th century. That's, that's a big deal. So anyway, we'll get into nerd, nerd realm here. If we keep on about the, the, uh, history. And, yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, Kurt, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show. If people wanted to connect with you, new Western, or just learn more about what you got going on, where is the best place we could point them? Newwestern.com. Great place to start. You can go on there and you can literally be speaking to somebody, you know, in your city, someone local within 20 minutes of going on that website. So that's the nice thing where we value being, you know, in every market that we're in, actually on the ground. Um, and then if you want to look me up, you know, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm there. I've got a, I always, you know, pushing out things there about news, what how the market's changing and things like that. Awesome. Well, Kurt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.